How about now? All right. I should have taken my drink before I turned the mic on, right? All right. Good morning. Now that you can hear me. <laughs> well, for those of you that uh, don't know me, and many of you do, I think, based on what I can see, um, my name is Josiah Stevens, and uh, my wife, Robin, and I, and our four kids have been attending Emmanuel for about four years now. And uh, in addition to occasionally sharing this pulpit, uh, it is my honor and privilege to serve Emmanuel as an elder. Um, just one month ago, that began. And I'm excited about that journey with uh, a total of seven guys. That's, that's a good thing. And, uh, and as the, uh, the worship ministry lead as well. Um, I'm consistently humbled every time I take the opportunity to preach. Uh, preaching God's Word is no small task. I would encourage you, if you think about it at all, to, to consider it and to, uh, at the very least, plunge into it as though maybe you were to preach, even if you never did, because it is a good thing. Uh, it will test you, <laughs> and... Uh, and I'm thankful for it. So, on that note, let's, uh, let's start with prayer. Father, I am weak. But I am willing. Father, may your words be heard this morning. Not my words, not my thoughts, but your words and your heart. As we look into your word, we desire to see you and know you in new and deeper ways. And I pray that I'm not in the way of that. Reveal yourself to us that we would be further transformed into your likeness, for that is what we need. Thank you for this time we have together this morning. In Jesus' name. All right, so we have been on a journey through First Peter since March, if you can believe it. And uh, just two weeks ago, we began the section on... Um, Suffering for righteousness' sake, which I will be uh, one verse shy of completing today. Um, so we will be in First Peter 18 through 21. And while our focus will be to address uh, suffering in the Christian life, there is plenty for those who have not yet placed their faith in Christ to consider. And it is my prayer that each soul that does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior would come to faith in the hearing of the gospel today, knowing that it's not just you folks in this room, but we're out there on the internet. So um, do not be hindered by the language of Christian life if you are not yet a Christian. Please listen. I'm actually going to back up a little bit and start reading uh, our passage today, starting in verse 8. So, and I will be reading from the ESV. All right. So, he begins, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, Brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And before we continue into our passage for today, I want to take just a moment to talk about the suffering that not just these, uh, these folks in in Asia Minor that Peter was writing to experiencing, but that is common to the Christian life. And Fletch mentioned three of them last week. He said uh, there are three types of suffering, common human suffering, conse- or, I'm sorry, uh, mortification of the flesh, and persecution. And for today, I'm going to actually break the common human suffering somewhat into two. Um, common human suffering, I'm going to define as that which has been inherited. So pretend that you could actually live righteously in this world um, and pretend that no one would persecute you for it. This world is still broken. You'd still get sick. You'd still die. You would still suffer. Um, accidents would still happen. Uh, natural disasters would still occur. So that... Uh, common human suffering, entered the world during the fall, and we now live in this, this broken place that is, uh, that is full of fault and error, and, uh, and we suffer as a result. And that's maybe one of the most difficult things for us to, to struggle with because there's no cause. We can't say, well, because I did something bad, I got sick, um, or because this person was evil, they got in a car accident. Uh, they just happen. The, the, what I want to, to split that out into, though, um, because sin, yes, did enter the world, and we do experience the consequences of that, um, but we also inherited that sin nature in our birth as well. Um, and so we perpetuate the problem, right? We sin as well. And so I would like to, to add to this list the consequences of sin. And this is not just the consequences of our own sin, uh, but also that of, the, of others, because clearly we can suffer not just for the sins that we commit. Uh, we are often suffering because of the sins that others are committing. With that said, the, the challenge for the Christian, so those, those two types of suffering, no one can avoid, regardless of your faith. Like you, you, those two things are going to happen in this lifetime, period. Our response to that suffering as Christians is almost an exacerbation of the suffering Um, because we cannot simply say, well, because this wrong thing has happened, I will go avenge it and I will murder the person who did X or I will uh, take up some sort of substance abuse to numb myself so that I don't have to deal with the consequences of the pain that I'm in. we, we can't do that. So we, we suffer a little bit more in that we die to our desire to take matters into our own hands and to bring about solutions in our time, on our terms, and by our will. And, and that's where that type of suffering is the mortification of our flesh, the, the dying to self, the recognition that if we were to actually uh, respond to our suffering by trying to self-medicate, trying to self-protect, uh, uh, trying to self-justify uh, in the cases where we're the ones sinning, right? Uh, that would be our first desire is to just justify ourselves so we can get ourselves off the hook. Um, we die to that, and we trust that God will right the situation 
we trust that God will comfort us in our sorrow. We trust that God will see us through the storm that we're facing. And because our hope is eternal, the solution to that suffering doesn't have to happen in this lifetime. It can happen beyond. When we behave in these ways, when we die to ourselves in this world, in our response to this common human suffering and the the consequences of sin, we are oftentimes persecuted as a result. Um, And even even without just just being who we are, um, persecution will come. I, I thought it would be at least interesting for us to take just a moment to talk or to think about the suffering that it, uh, of persecution that the early Christians that Peter was writing to would have been experiencing. Yes, there, was, there were bad things happening, and it got a lot worse after Peter wrote this letter in terms of Nero's basically state-sanctioning uh, persecution of Christians. Um, but let's imagine for a minute the, the Jewish family whose son has converted to Christianity, and he no longer wants to go with his family to the temple to make sacrifices because for him, Christ is the all-sufficient sacrifice. So he is now breaking a tradition that his family not only does because it is uh, part of their culture and part of the tradition, but also something they believe is linked to their salvation or their uh, right standing with God. Um, that while it wouldn't necessarily start in persecution right there, uh, imagine the father who finds out what group of people converted my kid to Christianity and is messing up our family. Imagine the daughter uh, that now wants to go and have non-kosher dinner with her her Gentile friends. Um, How would parents deal with these disturbances to their family. Um, If you were someone in a position of power, of influence, you might start to say, hey, you know what? We need to uh, keep those Christians from meeting over here. They're not allowed to do that anymore. Or let's do this or let's do that in a way to to control it, right? Um, And if you were somebody who was reckless and had nothing to lose, you might take matters into your own hands in a different way. So, that type of suffering uh, or that type of persecution, I think we, we often don't necessarily think about. Um, but, the, uh, but Jesus actually says that that will happen. Um, and he says it in, uh, in Luke 12, 52 and 53. He says, for now, From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And we can imagine the in-law situation being interesting when a Jewish boy wants to marry a Gentile girl or vice versa uh, because they are now Christians and they're not worried about such things. The home is where many of the battlegrounds are, right? Um, And I just think it's good for us to recognize and bring that to... bring that into our our, uh, thinking. Um, That's something we can relate to. We don't have police knocking on our door and asking us uh, to renounce our faith. But we know what it's like to, um, to experience broken in our homes as a result of faith in one way or another. And uh, we can imagine what that would be like. The Christian's response to, to persecution, though, right? This is now an attack on who uh, we are as Christians. The temptation comes again to sin. The temptation comes again to take matters into our own hands and strike back at those, or uh, to revile for reviling, to, to repay evil for evil. And so, again, we are brought to a place of suffering, 
as a result of persecution in this case. Maybe on top of dealing with suffering as a result of common human suffering, you have a, mortal, or a, a terminal illness or something of that sort, on top of dealing with your own sin, and you still again have to suffer in the mortification of your flesh to resist the urge to take matters into your own hands, to play God, and to trust that he will actually carry you through it. That seems pretty hard. That seems uh, daunting. Um, because it, it's just suffering on top of suffering, on top of suffering. But, uh, well, it may seem that way, I think we will see today that Peter is giving his readers a reason to have hope in the midst of their suffering. So we'll continue our passage now, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the, the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So as we go into actually breaking this scripture down, let's let's just pray one more time. Father, your word is, is amazing, and it is, uh, it is complex, and it is simple. Um, and we desire for our understanding to be broken on your word, that we would not bend your word to our understanding, but we would be willing to have our understanding broken upon your word and our minds aligned with yours. May we see what you have in it for us, in Jesus' name. All right. So, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There is some beautiful theology that is packed into those words. And I'd like to break that out. So, first... For Christ also. Just those three words. The for and the also tell us that we should be sure to link it to the verses above it. In the verses that precede uh, our passage today that we, that we read, Peter is exhorting his audience to be zealous for what is good even if it results in suffering and persecution. By starting this verse with for Christ also suffered, Peter is saying to his readers that they are not the only ones who would be suffering for righteousness' sake. In fact, there was one who went before. And they would not, so they would not only not be the first, but they are also not alone in their suffering. Peter actually uh, sums up that idea pretty well uh, in the previous chapter. So in uh, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23, he almost kind of sums up what he says later, which is, which is funny. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So that right there is really all that his readers would need to, to hear to be convinced that, uh, that they could continue in their doing good works, continue in their living in righteousness, 
um, and suffer for it because of what Christ has already done. Um, and, and taking that example, and so when, when Peter says the example, he's not just saying, look, here's how to do it. Now, good luck. Go ahead and do it. Um, he is saying that uh, the way that Christ in the situation did not do these things, uh, did not revile for reviling, did not uh, return evil for evil, that the last part of that verse, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So that, that's the part that we can, we can take as the example, not just a look at it and say, okay, that, that's how I should live and, and good luck to me, but uh, how did Christ do that? He continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. And we can all do that. That is not something that is beyond our ability to do, to entrust ourselves to him. Um, him who judges justly when we are suffering at the hands of injustice. Moving to the words, suffered once for sins. Just in the words suffered alone, we see that it is past tense. Christ, in his suffering, ended at the cross. And we see this in John 19.30 when he says, it is finished. His suffering, though, was not simply just at the cross, and sometimes we limit it to that in in our thinking. Um, He suffered every day he was... (laughs) As a human walking this earth, he suffered with us, right? He suffered with sinful man. And we see time and time again where his disciples get him <laughs> frustrated. Um, and he says, oh, where have you guys been? You know, why do you have such little faith still? Do you still not understand what I'm saying? Um, there's countless examples of that. He was constantly being irritated or bothered and challenged by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He experienced the death of people that he cared about in in Lazarus, and he wept. He experienced abandonment by his disciples when, when he did go to the cross, the denial of Peter. And we don't have any account of it, but surely he had some sort of illness at some point. I mean... I can't imagine he was just a completely healthy guy. I imagine he probably stubbed his toe a few times and maybe got his foot stepped on by a donkey or something, and who knows. But, uh, but his suffering was real in his living as well. And uh, just to, to evidence some of this, uh, this in living, but also it kind of branches over into his, his, uh, his crucifixion, I'm just going to read from Isaiah 53, and if you'd like to turn there, we're just going to read the whole chapter because when we talk about the suffering of Jesus for righteousness' sake, I think this is, uh, sums it up pretty well. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions, 
stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I started by going through all the Gospels, trying to find all these examples of the ways in which Christ suffered. And then I read this, and I said, well, that sums it up. I'm I'm not going to give everybody 50 different references throughout the New Testament. Uh, It's amazing how accurate, how uh, so many of these things came to pass. Uh, All of these things came to pass. But just as you're reading it, you're thinking, oh, yeah, I read that there, I read that there, I read that there. Um, we also have to remember too that he, he was tempted in the desert uh, by Satan himself and he had to endure that and he had to, um, to resist that temptation um, and in doing so uh, as it states in, in Hebrew uh, Hebrews 4.15 as a result of, of all that he has been through we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. So his suffering, the fact that he suffered, was a reality in his living, was a reality in his death. Doing all of that for our sake, that we would have him in heaven interceding for us, able to sympathize with our weakness. Moving on to the word once. Once is another important word because it indicates sufficiency, satisfaction, efficacy. In other words, he doesn't need to do it again, and there's not work left to do. So he doesn't need to repeat anything, and he doesn't need to add to what he did. Once. In Hebrews 7, 26 through 27, it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And also in Hebrews 9, 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And this brings us to the word for sins. So we are going through the, uh, the three words, suffered once, four words, suffered once for sins. So we are now looking at four sins. And this indicates that the sin of the world was the purpose of his suffering. Which points to his purpose being atonement. Our sins have been paid for. Peter's passage in chapter 2, the the third verse in in the section that we looked at earlier, In chapter 2, verse 24, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And he quotes Isaiah 53 by saying, By his wounds you have been healed. So he suffered once for sins. And then we come to the words, the righteous for the unrighteous. These words 
communicate substitution. Well, we were the unrighteous ones, and the sin was ours to atone for, though we could not. He took our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It doesn't get much clearer than that. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us. It was a substitution. It should have been us. We were the ones who owed that debt. There's also a point to be made here uh, that Peter's audience can take comfort in. This substitutionary sacrifice removes the worst of all suffering that we can experience. And so we'll add, as we talked about in the beginning, there were four types of, of suffering, common human suffering, suffering as a consequence of sin, suffering as a mortification of the flesh, and suffering under persecution. The fifth would be suffering the wrath of God. And that he took for us. In that moment, in that realization, you look at what suffering we do face and you think, what is the suffering that we will face (laughs) compared to what we would have deserved, what we do deserve, um, but will not have to endure in Christ? Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Thank God for his substitution. We can also gather uh, from this that while we are escaping the worst suffering, so we are not experiencing the suffering as a result of God's wrath because of the death of Christ being substitutionary, it means also that Christ did suffer that. Um, And we can see this on display as Jesus called out on the cross in Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's one thing to think, yes, I've escaped wrath of God. And it's another to consider the fact that the only reason I can say that is because he endured it. What honor and praise Jesus is due for his sacrifice and his suffering for us. It's hard to feel like those words really capture (laughs) what's happening there. Um, An amazing work, for sure. We come to the reason for why Christ suffered once for sins in a substitutionary way. And that is that he might bring us to God. We now see a motive. In a verse uh, in John uh, where Jesus is being asked, uh, challenged by the the Jewish uh, people at that time um, about who he was and his authority and so on, in John 8, 42, he responded to them that uh, I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So the bringing us to God is not something of our own merit, like that we were so special that, that uh, he would do the work that he was doing. It was because God desired it and he sent him. And we can see further God's plan in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, so bringing us to God, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. This is an important thing for us to understand because the plan is bigger than you. We tread into dangerous territory when we start to make statements like, if you were the only person that existed, God would still have done everything that he did. God's plan is bigger than our individual lives. And our reconciliation isn't the end of his plan. Because in his reconciling us, he makes us ambassadors with Christ of that reconciliation. His plan will be accomplished with or without us as individuals helping out. But praise God that he has made a way for us to participate and share in the glory he will bring about. So in summary, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, is basically saying Christ suffered in this life, in his life, in his death, so he could be a substitutionary sacrifice, that we would be reconciled to God. The ultimate suffering for righteousness' sake, right? So this is where Peter is talking about in this, this whole section is the suffering for righteousness' sake. This is the ultimate of, of that. Um, this would certainly reassure, encourage, and, and reinvigorate Peter's audience, and it should do the same for us. We come now to the part of the how, how that all happened. Um, or part of the process, um, and that is, in the words, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And here we see Christ's physical body dying and being made alive in the spirit. Um, and as I was looking through, in, in those words, we see baptism. Baptism dying to the flesh, being alive to the spirit. And um, I have never put these things together before, but in Mark 10, 38, in a conversation with his disciples, Jesus asks them, so this is into his ministry after his baptism by John, says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And then in Luke 12, 50, uh, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. I think based on the way those things are worded, he's not talking about his baptism with John. He's talking about what he is about to do, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. We're going to put a pin in that for a minute because we have a little detour to take in this passage. And uh, as I was preparing, I realized why Fletch, why Fletch made me preach on this, this one. That's not true. He didn't actually make me preach on this one. This is a very uh, <laughs> this is a complicated part. So verse 19 and 20, we're going to read the whole thing. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water, or through water. First of all, the, uh, the, the first three verses of this chapter, is a, they're all one sentence. There are 11 commas in that sentence. Seven of them are in the last two verses. And it just makes it hard to read. Grammatical uh, difficulty aside, the passage also has some strange content. So why don't we start with what we do know? We do know that the ark safely carried its passengers during the flood in Genesis chapter 8. So we know that. We also know that the humans that entered the ark were Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and their three wives, so eight people. We know that. 
and that's evidenced in Genesis 7. We know that Noah built the ark, as recounted in Genesis 6, and that God waited patiently until it was built to flood the earth. And looking into it, a fair estimate is about somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 years to actually complete the work. We know that there was an increase in corruption on the earth, also evidenced in Genesis 6, to the point that God had resolved to blot out man from the face of the earth with a flood. But what we don't know, or what's a little ambiguous, is who are these spirits in prison? Uh, What did Christ proclaim? And when did Christ preach? And there are a number, uh, two or three, four possible um, popular understandings of the passage. And some of them are fairly complex and seem incongruent with the passage. So what I found most helpful, uh, I actually found in an article uh, from the Gospel Coalition by Guy Waters. Um, and this is, this is what he said. So the first point is addressing who is doing the proclaiming. It suggested that the one who does the proclaiming of verse 19 is not the risen Christ, or is not the risen Jesus. It's Jesus who preaches, to be sure, but he preaches in the Holy Spirit. The timing of his proclamation is not the window between death and ascension of Jesus Christ. It's during the lifetime of Noah. So Peter is saying that Noah, in the course of building the ark, bore testimony to the coming judgment of God. Noah's work was pretty conspicuous, right? Uh, It would have been impossible for people to not notice the giant boat and all of the creatures that were being gathered to it. He was the herald of righteousness, as Peter actually mentions in his second letter, in 2 Peter 2.5. Noah preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit whom Peter has earlier called the Spirit of Christ. So if you look at 1 Peter 1.11, there's a mention of the Spirit of Christ working through the prophets of old. But the men and women of Noah's generation, notwithstanding God's patience uh, in delaying judgment, spurned that proclamation. Because of their former disobedience, they were presently in prison. That is, their souls, upon their deaths, were justly committed to hell to be punished for their sins. So what is being stated there is that in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison is in the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that spirit of Christ, that Holy Spirit, was the spirit active in Noah in the activity of building the ark and whatever conversations may have come up as a result. Um, And those spirits that are in prison are referring to spirits that are now in prison because they previously did not obey. Um, Now again, there are other interpretations of this passage, um, but this one fits most congruently with what Peter is addressing, right? Who is he talking to? He's talking to elect exiles, a small group of people facing adversity and needing encouragement, needing hope. And what was Noah? Noah was he and seven other people, eight people, in a world that was so corrupt that God wanted to just end it all. So there are similarities in their situation. He's explaining here that the same spirit that did the work then is the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead and is the same spirit that now dwells in us. So that, again, also is an encouragement to these people. Um, And in the next verse, Peter takes this connection between Noah and the elect exiles a little further. So we look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, so he's saying which corresponds to what we just talked about with Noah, escaping through the water in the ark, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now we we can return from that detour. So we talked about in verse 18, the being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, referring to Jesus 
enduring a baptism that he referred to as a baptism of his death and resurrection of the work that happened there and connecting that with what happened during the flood and the ark. So the ark and the flood are pointing to Jesus' baptism, Jesus' work at the cross and in his resurrection, not at the ordinance of baptism that we observe today, because what we do in the ordinance of baptism today is really pointing also to the baptism of Jesus. And that is why Peter can say, it now saves you. Because if it were just the ordinance of baptism, that alone doesn't save us. It is the baptism of Jesus that saves us, and it is our participation in the ordinance of baptism that is the profession that we place our faith in that, that we say, yes, I, I should be submerged in the waters of judgment, and I, I should be the one. But I place my hope in Christ, who is this ark that I hide myself in, and I'm carried safely through the water. Now, that's an encouraging thing for people who are facing suffering. A few verses that that resonate with all of this. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. This is what we're professing in baptism, right? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 3.3 For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And 2 Corinthians 5 was a very helpful chapter. I have pulled from it at least three times here. But 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17, one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This reality of finding ourselves hidden in Christ's provision this death of ourselves and our life being found in him directly addresses what we started talking about this morning, which is we're suffering as a result of sin in the world. We're suffering as a result of our own sin. We're suffering because we're persecuted. And all of those things require us to continue to die to ourselves, not react reviling for reviling or evil for evil, not lose ourselves in some addiction or substance abuse of some sort to self-medicate, not to self-justify. It requires that we die. That death, though, as we, we started saying, seems daunting, but the reality is that the difficult part was done already. The, the hardest suffering of it all was completed in Christ. And all we need to do now is walk into into that ark of Christ that was built to carry us through time and time again, every day, over and over, dying to self, in in many ways proclaiming, I'm already dead, (laughs) my flesh is dead, and now the life I live is in Christ. That is a sustaining power. That is a power that takes us beyond our own ability. Otherwise, it's not a great outlook just to say, well, I'm going to suffer on top of suffering, on top of suffering, on top of suffering. Um, We need that sustaining power of Christ to propel us through 
the suffering that we will experience and to do it righteously. There is a final day of judgment coming. God has built us an ark in Jesus to reconcile us to him before the floodwaters come, before the day of judgment. The cross was the place where God's wrath was poured out on Jesus because he bore all the sins of the world. Jesus was later resurrected by the Spirit overcoming death. God's ark is complete. It is now effective. It is able to carry us through. The door is open and ready for all who place their faith in Jesus to hide, that we might be carried safely through the water, through the final day of judgment. And that is the sustaining power of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in the hearing of your word today, that salvation is realized by those that don't yet know it. I pray that sanctification is advanced in the lives of the faithful. That we would see you as the sustaining power that we need that has been freely given to us, that there is no obstacle to approach, to endure the suffering that we are guaranteed to suffer in this life. And we desire to do it with our life in you and a death to our, to our old self. Because we want to, we want to bear your image. We want to be ambassadors. We want to be ministers of reconciliation. We know that you will do it. We know that it is your plan. We submit to it. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.